Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock-flavoured podcast. On this show, Simon Perrins, artist and co-host of Can I Pod with Madness, is back, as we return to the saga of Coram, the prince in the scarlet robe, arguably Mocock's most nuanced fantasy hero, as he seeks vengeance against the wicked Mabden that slaughtered his family and took his hand and eye. A stiff task at the best of times, but made more complex, as ever, in the tribulations of the Eternal Champion, by the machinations of the higher powers of chaos. So, along with his love Relina, mysterious companion Jari, and his winged cat Whiskers, and assisted by the eldritch powers of the Eye of Rin and the Hand of Quill, two impossibly ancient and powerful gods, and, having previously dealt with the Knight of the Swords Ariok, Coram ventures into the realm of the Queen of the Swords to seek assistance to save his land, Liu Manesh, from the vicious Mabden menace and their brutal allies. We have, of course, talked about the Knight of the Swords previously, and you can find the first part of our delve into this book in our back catalogue. It did take us a while to get this episode up and running for a variety of reasons, and even when we did get to it, it seemed that the forces of chaos were determined to interfere with our technology and break our will, but we got there in the end. Up yours, Mabalode. So pour yourself a low-grade snake bite, and head through the portal to join Simon and me as we complete our journey into the realm of the Queen of the Swords. Alright, finally. Well, finally, we're back in Derry and Tom's with Simon Perrins, and good lord, what a palaver we've had actually getting together to do this. I think five separate cancellations. And then, when we finally get here... When we finally get here, technology problems as well. Uh, anyway, all mysterious clicks have disappeared. The sound of the seashore washing, or the sea washing against the shore, has gone. And we're finally back and ready to hit the road with Queen of the Swords Part 2. Welcome back, Simon. The hearing of a distant ocean does seem very Moorcock, though, doesn't it? It does in a way. Like, yeah. you, you can't see where the, the ocean is, but you can hear it. Yeah, it's probably some giant dude wading through the ocean, time bandit style. <laughs> yeah, wading. Yeah. We're bloody wading gods. Uh, now then, it has been a while since we did book one, and we did have a quick conversation. We decided yes. that because we've waited so long, we should do books two and three. <laughs> Actually get this mother finished, <laughs> otherwise we'll be yeah. here till 2025. So that's what we're going to do. But meanwhile... You are absolutely bashing out episodes of Can I Pod with Madness at a, a frankly industrial rate. What have you been talking um, about recently? Well, we just recorded a Christmas episode, uh, which was based on the December 1983 uh, edition of uh, Kerrang. Um, I think that's going out tomorrow, um, which is not very Christmassy, um, but we just talked about Christmas music and just what we do for Christmas. <laughs> Um, and I've got another Chris. I've got the Christmas '88 issue to uh, get into um, for for this week, uh, the next recording. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's all all the same. It's all the same. As we've, we're mostly doing Kerrang and Metal Hammer from 1987 to '88-'89. We've occasionally delved into like slightly outside that period. We've done one from '91. We've done. I think a couple from 84. Yeah, and I want I wanted to do one recently because it just felt like we were just covering the same. Like every week it's a story about Motley Crue cancelling a tour. 
Well, I think that's all they all they did in the late <laughs> '80s was just have a, a tour planned and just cancel uh, for whatever reason, you know, death and you know, drunkenness and debauchery. Um, but uh, yeah, we, I mean, we I, I'm I'm sort of trying to get across that we're we're not experts on metal at all. We've got we've got an interest and we've got a love of the music, but we don't know mostly of most of the stuff we're talking about we don't really know. So we do sort of drift off into sort of endless uh you know, waffle uh and just general sort of nostalgic stuff. But yeah, we I think we're enjoying it so far. Well, I've got to say the the enjoyment that you share doing the podcast shines through because it's always funny. And uh, the rapport you both have is great. And also, well, naturally, you would have because you're a couple. <laughs> so you would hope that would be the case. You'd hope. But yeah, but um, your absolute love of Motley Crue does also shine through. Um, I think the crew are probably the most mentioned band, even more so than Maiden, which maybe, you know, at times, I don't know. Yeah, you should yeah. Rebad- rebadge's Pod at the Devil or Podding in the Boys' Room or something. <laughs> No, don't read back. I'm just joking. Possibly. <laughs> uh, but no, congratulations, because I mean, you've already breezed through your 25th episode um, not so long ago, and mm-hmm. now you're getting your Christmas special out the, of the way the as well. The 25th is the next one we're recording, yeah. Ah, um, right. So or maybe, yeah, but we might have split one into two, maybe. Um, but yeah, we're still we're still enjoying it. And yeah, it's just, I mean, we yeah, we we've had a few... Um, just things getting in the way, but because mm. we're only releasing them every two weeks, you, yeah. you hopefully don't see the joins so yeah. much. Yeah. Oh, but it's, uh, yeah, uh, no, it's 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 uh, great. It's, it's I'm finding it. I I think I'm our biggest fan because I listen I listen back when I'm editing, and then I listen back anyway to sort of remind myself of what we're talking about. And I, I find myself I, mean, I shouldn't say this, should I? I find myself laughing at it. And then when we're talking about when we're recording and we're talking about previous episodes, I'm going, oh, do you remember in episode four we talked about? And, and she's like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I've listened to this several times now, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's just, to be fair, it's, it's the same uh, when I yeah, have Phil just, on. Just exploring the world of podcasting. Yeah. When I have Phil on and I say, you know, you do recall that uh, we we talked about X when we talked about The Eternal Champion book two. And she just looks vacant at me and shakes her head. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're not the crushing nerd I am. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot you're not the crushing nerd I am. Number two, you've got a life and you think about other things. And number three, <laughs> I listen to this. Things. Yeah, and I listen to this back when I edit it. <laughs> and so, you know, that, yeah. funnily enough, when you talk about um, laughing back at it when you're um, editing, I haven't edited it properly yet, but last weekend, Laws was over. And we came up with a really lazy and stupid concept for our birthday stroke Christmas episode. And I got it together. I got the sound levels balanced. I did some normalization and compression, like all the good audio guys do, who actually know what the fuck it means. I don't really. I just know it makes it sound slightly better. And I did have a few chuckles at just how fucking stupid it was. So, yeah, I share that. And also, we drank some truly, truly horrific beer. So, this evening, I've actually decided, plus it's also a school night, I've decided to stay off the beer and I'm drinking Daffy's Mulberry Gin. It's got a very pretty little label. And I've got to say, I'm not a massive... Oh, very nice. Yeah, I'm not, not not a massive gin guy. I do like a bit of gin, but I tend to prefer just straightforward dry gins like Heyman's or Tanqueray or, you know, 
Cromwell <laughs> from Aldi. Uh, they're, they're my yeah. kind of gin. And I tend to avoid flavoured gins. But a few years ago, Phil got me Daffy's uh, Gooseberry Gin. And it was fantastic. Just a dry gin with a, like, yeah. with, a, with a bitter hint of gooseberry. Absolutely amazing. But it's really, really hard to find now, apparently. And she can't find it anymore. So she got me this Mulberry Gin. It's pretty fantastic. So I'm going to drink some gin this evening yeah. to settle myself down after our technical problems <laughs> in terms of getting started <laughs> and see if we can get through this. Now, with it being a school night, are you drinking a tipple this evening? Uh, I bought myself a Thistley Cross. I just looked for whatever I had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've had this before. I think it's pretty nice, hmm. you know, I, as a cider. I actually like Thistley Cross. I think it's, I think it's a, a good one. We've never fallen down the cider trap yeah. on this until... I suppose we got close to it because, I mean, no spoilers, but the last drink that Loz pulled out of his the magic hat of Pat Ferrick was snake and black. Now, canned, pre-prepared snake bite and black. Uh, no spoilers. It was fucking awful. It was really, really bad. And it, <laughs> it went down the sink. <laughs> it was bloody awful. Yeah. You, you weren't a... Uh... You weren't a cider and black uh, drinker in your in your in your teenage days, like most people seem to be. Well, I was very much a snake bite drinker, not but not a, not a cider and black or a snake yeah. bite and black drinker. So back in the day when we didn't have a lot yeah. of money, we would be in a situation when we we're on the dole where we thought, right, we could afford a five a deal, or we could afford maybe six cans of a Rangie Boom and a two liter bottle of Carbon White. So depending on what mood we were in, yeah, we would get a five a deal and do it in buckets. As the old uh, the old expression, not going to go into detail. Uh, oh, we would do a uh, snake bite made with carbon white and a boom, and then drink them as fast as possible because if we took our time, we probably won't get drunk enough. So my experiences with snake bite were pretty uh, low grade, let's say. But yes, I did enjoy a snake bite from time to time. And frankly, if you're going to get drunk on carbon white, or what were some of the other ones? There was carbon white, graphite. They all have, they were all themed around carbon stroke diamond stroke something or other. But there was two liter bottles I of mean, graphite. That sounds that sounds rough. Yeah, yeah. Carbon white was pretty bad. I think it was one pound twenty nine for two liters, and it was eight point two percent. And if you and if you got six cans of a boom and there was two of you, you could make a boom snake bite with um, carbon white and just drink yeah. it fast, and you know, hopefully get slightly drunk out of it or feel vaguely sick. But these are the depths that you plumb when you're skint in the old country. So. When I was um, in college, a, a bargain booze opened really near to our house, and they used to sell Zeppelin cider. <laughs> Zeppelin! <laughs> and, and, like, Zeppelin cider was so rough. I mean, it sounded, oh, cool, Zeppelin, yeah. you know, but, uh, it, yeah, I, I did not go back to that regularly. It was what I wouldn't give. Paint thinners. What I wouldn't give to get my hands on some Zeppelin cider. I'm, that's going to have to be a task now. It's going to have to be some kind <laughs> of um, quest for when we finally do Wall Out of the Air. I've got to, I've got to drink Zeppelin cider when we do it. The closest I've ever come is there's a Jägermeister knockoff called Messerschmitt, <laughs> which you get, which I've seen right. in, in bargain shops like. B&M Bargains and, um, and Home Bargains and places like that, yeah. Messerschmitt. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, uh, dear, oh dear. Anyway, so before we um, we crack on to Queen of the Swords Part 2, uh, you've also been horror conning. Uh, yeah, indeed. It's sort of quite a regular 
well, it has been a regular thing in the past. Yeah, we had a couple of years of not going to anything at all. But yeah, the, the main one we've been to is for the love of horror in uh, Manchester. And yeah, we uh, we always have a, a top time there. Like, for some reason, horror fans are just absolutely lovely, which you wouldn't think. But I, I think... Um, I think just fans of any kind, if you, you know, because none of these events are, are that cheap. I think people sort of make the decision to go. They spend money and they spend money on the tickets and the travel and the, you know, meeting the, you know, celebrities and things. And so most people just seem so determined to have a good time that they're just, it's just, it's just a pleasure to be around, you know, even though it's like Freddy Krueger or, you know, mm. someone with like weeping sores and, or, you know, <laughs> You, you stood in the toilet next to Satan. Everyone just seems to just have a, a, a whale of a time. You know, the first one we went to was kind of a Lost Boys reunion, and my my partner is uh, the biggest Lost Boys fan I've ever met. Yeah, they had, they, they had like most the vast majority of the cast who do these things were there. They didn't have so many this year, but they had a fair few of them this year. And they had Kiefer Sutherland there this year, although he was there. He was there the first year we went, but very briefly. And he just did some signings and he wasn't on any of the panels. But this time he was like there the whole the whole weekend and he was on panels and stuff. Yeah. And like uh, the director and the stars of Blair Witch Project were there. And it, like um, I didn't realize Terrifier was such a popular franchise, like Terrifier fans, are, are, you know, everywhere. Um, and I, wa- I watched the first one. I hated it and didn't watch any of the others. But uh, yeah, I mean, even even the stuff you've not seen or you're not interested in, I still sort of find it fascinating listening to the talks and stuff. And um, yeah, it's it's a little bit more mm. relaxing if you're not getting as many autographs and photos as we were the first year, because it was like pretty hectic because you had like a 15 minute window here and another 15 minute window there. But um, yeah, every other time we've been there, it's been a bit more of a, of a relaxing, just a sort of day out and you just hang out mm. and get your photo taken with, you know, some gigantic mutant thing that you don't it's probably from some franchise you've never heard of but it's like oh yeah. he looks cool you know yeah and it's on the same day as thought bubble or the same yes. weekend as thought bubble which i because i've not been to thought bubble in a couple of years but uh yeah yeah i hadn't, I hadn't quite realized but you were at thought bubble this year right yeah it's, it's really kind of irritating that thought bubble clashes with quite a number of things not least of which of course is grog meat it clashes with grog meat as well. So I've not managed to get to grog meat for several years. So we, oh, yeah. I think last time I did grog meat was probably well, pre pandemic. And Phil came over and stayed in Manchester as well. We had a really good time. And, you know, I did the gaming during the day and then we went out for dinner in the evening. It was really good. But yeah, for whatever reason, Thought Bubble always just um, impacts on quite a few different things. And we've just settled into a routine of going to Thought Bubble with our friends. And we got a an Airbnb in Harrogate. So I just spent three or four days there just eating and drinking and having a nice time. We bumped into Tom Murphy and uh, and his wife Jane of Colossive Press. Managed to have a, a face-to-face and a meet-up with him for the first time, which was really, really lovely. You know, I always drop by and see John Wagner, of course. Although on this occasion, I think uh, John had probably sold up most of his stuff on day three because he was in the pub by about half past three. And what else? Yeah, I think this year I didn't spend much money on art or comics but i ended up buying two role-playing games that i saw there one called rune rune cairn with a goran gligovich cover and another one which i've got to say this is really terrible it's still in the tote bag and i bought the 150 quid gm pack 
with all the different books because they looked absolutely lovely. It's a horror role-playing game, and I've got it in a, a nice um, tote bag, and I still haven't opened it and looked at it, and I've completely forgotten what it was called. So I spent far too much money on stuff <laughs> that will probably go on a shelf or go in a corner, but it doesn't matter because I always enjoy stuff like that. But the problem with this is, from going to our SFX weekenders, I've got original art by people like Simon Davis and Boo Cook that I've picked up over the years, and they're all still in bags in the loft. I've never done anything with them. Yeah. They're just up there, and so I've, I've ruled out spending any more money on original art until we've got a house three times bigger than this one and we can actually do something with it. The only things I've ever got framed are my Clint Langley, Elric pictures. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, which which are, you know, which are pretty special. Um and the day will come when I'm able to actually pull all this stuff out. I've got I've got Conan by Will Simpson. You know, I've got um Solomon oh, wow. Kane. Yeah, I've got Solomon Kane by Will Simpson and Boo Cook. Just be from just from going to these events, getting drunk and saying to them, you know, do you fancy doing a sketch of X? I've got a I've got an original Glenn Fabry of Slough Egg drinking a can of Stella. Um Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're just they're just up there and they're still yeah. in the bags that I brought them home and I've never been able to do anything with them. So I really need to pull my finger out and do something with them and stop spending money on stuff until I can do something sensible with it. Yeah, but this is the joy well, of the, these in things. In the meantime, in the meantime, you can just have a, a day or a weekend. You just go up there, you get everything down, and take pictures. Yeah. I think we all need to see these. Yeah, I've got some lovely stuff. I've got uh, the original yeah. painted centre spread of Slain artwork by Simon Davis. I've got um, on yeah. on board. I've got his original Conan, sorry Conan, his original Slain um, concept art. That he did as a as a yeah. sketch just to agree with Pat Mills how they would get the look right. Oh yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm going to stop banging on about it. But yes, at some point I will get it all out and take and take pictures <laughs> and share them just so it's actually doing something. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, we're we've already gone off on a colossal <laughs> di digression and we haven't even got started yet. But what are we here to do? We're here to do Queen of the Swords Part Two, of course. And where's my book? My book, I've managed to bury my book under rejected microphones from when I was trying to get rid of that clicking. But yes, book two. Book two is titled In Which Prince Coram and His Companions Gain the Further Enmity of Chaos and Experience a Strange New Form of Sorcery. Now, I am wondering at this point, should we recap book one? Or should we just trust that people who are going to listen to a podcast called Queen of the Swords Part Two might have listened to Queen of the Swords Part One? Mm. I'd, I'd hope they'll at least uh, read the book, so yeah. they should have some some memory of you know the general thrust of what's going on. Yeah, I think if they haven't read the book, and if not, they can just listen to the podcast. Yeah, if they haven't read the book, pause this, go back and listen to Queen of the Swords Part One. But in short, at the end of Queen of the Swords Part One, where Coram, his companion Jari Aconel, Jari's cat Whiskers, and his good lady Rolina have travelled across the land of Luimanesh because it's under threat from the forces of chaos. Chaos cults are, are rising up in the towns and villages, encouraging people to cast off their allegiance to law and Lord Arkin, and they finally get to the biggest city of all, where uh, the king is under pressure because chaos forces are landing on the coast. The Pony tribes and the Barbarians. And probably the best part of that other than all of the travelogue stuff when they're travelling through these small towns and seeing the creeping influence of chaos, there's, of course, 
the fantastic bit where Whiskers gets a chapter all to himself and goes on an adventure to uh, a massive chaos temple. But all good stuff. And they end up getting sent by Lord Arkin to a different realm, the realm of Zionbarg, the Queen of the Swords, one of the three sword rulers. Korum, of course, has already dispatched Ariok, the Knight of the Swords, in order to reach the City of the Pyramid. And this is effectively where we kick off. They've passed through the gateway, they're in this realm of chaos, looking for the City of the Pyramid. I think that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Straight away, psychedelic travelogue quest mode. We have this sense that, or they have this sense that it's a very strange world. The sun doesn't move in the sky. Everything's a little bit weird. Everything's very static. But we, first of all, find that Cora has to roll on the psychedelic chaos wilderness random encounter table and gets some annoying birds. Annoying birds of the avian variety. That, if I just uh, check my notes here, cackle sardonically. Uh. So we have some sardonically cackling chaos birds as the first encounter. Now, after attacking, but getting a bit nonplussed that one of their number gets strangled by the hand of Quill, they back off and there's a bit of a standoff for a bit. Now, of course, we've got to talk about the hand of Quill and the, the eye of Rin. I will get this the right way around. It's not the eye of Rill and the hand of Quim. It is the hand of Quill and the eye of Rin. And Corum sorts them out anyway with his eye of Rin. Now, Corum's magic eye and hand... They didn't really get any use in the first book, did they? So what is the deal with Coram's magic items gifted to him by the dead gods? Well, I think in that first book, it was it was just sort of revealed as this sort of horrific thing where he had this ability to kind of look into the realm, like the worst sort of hellish realm you can imagine and, and beckon his uh, stricken enemies to, to aid him. Um, I think he does that quite a lot mm. in this one. He's seeming to it, it does it does seem to oh, lose yeah. a little bit of its uh <laughs> uh shock value because he's doing I mean he's complaining about it while he's doing yeah. it. The the line it is yeah. oh um Relina says what is this foulness? And he goes, It's the foulness that aids us. It's almost like, look, shut up, I'm sort yeah. I'm sorting this thing out. I don't like it. <laughs> but he does yeah, it does it does sort of um yeah. get used quite a lot in this in this section. So that's the eye. The eye, he takes his eye patch off. He looks into a cave where the defeated victims of his last little army of the dead are there waiting. And then the hand of Quill beckons them to come out. And he sets them upon whatever the current adversary is. And it's like every time he uses them, he just stores up ammo for the next time he uses them. So every time they get killed, they refresh the ammo. Now, this becomes a bit of a problem when we find out some more of the rules of the eye. But then we've got the hand, which, okay, the hand beckons these creatures through. But what else does the hand do? It occasionally leaps into action and strangles somebody. It's pretty random, the hand, as to when it does and doesn't get involved in the action. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, oftentimes just when the plot requires it, it will just kind of spring into life and, mm. and uh, do something unspeakable. But, uh, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of control over it. Um, although, I'll, I'll admit, I have read forward. I've read the third book, and there is a little bit of uh, a little bit of explanation as to... I mean, it might have been after the fact. He uh. might have just sort of... He might not have been thinking that far in advance when he wrote this. But, uh, yeah, there there's some sort of reasons given... For, for some of the incidents a little bit later on. 
the first time he uses the mm-hmm. hand and the eye in this book, it's you've got the added shock value of it's his own people. Uh, because in the previous book, it was um, the, you know, the Vadag in the Burning Lands, I believe. Um, mm. So he has to go through that whole torment mm. again, which is, you know, a, another great bit of writing mm. of the, how tortured he is because he thinks his entire people have been wiped out. Then he meets some more and immediately they're all killed. Um, and then he has to watch them <laughs> as zombies. You know, it wasn't bad enough that he's slain his own people again. Uh, not like Elric, he yeah. didn't choose to do it. Yeah. He did it all by accident. But uh, yeah, yeah. Other than that, I think going forward, it does become a bit. You know, the shock value is a bit lessened, and uh, it does. It just you know, you know, it's like oh, well, use the hand and the eye. May as well go for it. It's pretty powerful. Get us out of this. Yeah, the the birds do get dispatched by these uh, effectively undead Valag from the last book. And yeah, you're right. The the degree to which the characters experience peril is slightly undermined somewhat by the frequent use of this uh, this magic item, this device. But we'll work through that as we go, uh, because the first thing they've got to do is Mocock pulls out one of his old favourite tools, which is the something of something. Something mundane of something mundane to combine them to make it something slightly sinister. So we have the Lake of Voices. And in Chapter 2... Well, the Lake of Voices, it's one of those situations where you think, oh, the Lake of Voices, that sounds pretty terrifying. This is going to be hard to cross. But there's a boat just conveniently waiting for them by the side. And the Lake of, whilst crossing the Lake of Voices is a pretty rubbish affair and a bit taxing, they do cross it. And thanks to sort of inadvertently tricking, inadvertently tricking the voice of the Lake of Voices into silencing all of the doomed souls that make it such a pain in the ass to navigate. And they get to the other side, and the voice of the lake of voices goes, I'll get you next time, and I won't, because I've lost all my souls, and I've got to start all over again. And then they move on. (laughs) I I really like that sequence, because it reminded me of a fighting fantasy book. It's like uh, like one of the sorcery books by Steve (laughs) Jackson. Uh, You know, he obviously had to test his luck a few times. Um, but, uh, yeah, that just, that little vignette of being on the lake and, you know, the kind of tortured souls of the people who were drowned yeah. in the lake, that's just pure, like early fighting fantasy books. Like they were, when they started, they were a little bit more sort of slightly sort of twisted fairy tale and they got a bit more sort of, um, they get more mm. sort of forgotten realms, Greyhawk, you know, like a, like a well thought out fantasy world later on. But those early ones, you would just get these odd little things that made no, no relation to the rest of the story. And we're just kind of like obviously cool, weird little things that uh, Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston had had in their D&D games just decided to throw into these books. And the Lake of Voices really had the feel of that, at least this time when I read it. Yeah. I don't think I got through all the sorcery books. I remember Care City Port of Traps. Yeah. And was there the Caverns of Cult? Yeah. Uh, I think think I I hadn't played those two. Caverns of Calte was Lone Wolf. But yeah, Lone Wolf and Sorcery were the two continuing oh, series. Right. What What was the second Sorcery book? Well, the the the, the first was the Shamu Tante Hills. The second was Kare City Port of Traps. Ah. The third was the Seven Serpents, right. and the yeah. fourth was the Crown of Kings. And they were like a long story, beautifully illustrated by John Blanche. They had a real atmosphere to them that I think a lot of the others didn't have. 
and and you can yeah. get them all like a there's like a sort of digital version of them now, and they've got all added content. You get like the the iPad or a, a smartphone version, but I would I would heartily recommend those if you want to dip back into the fighting fantasy books from the 80s with a little bit of added content. And yeah, the, the yeah there's something about the sorcery yeah. books. They just had a, a stranger feel to them. They're like the interesting names and, you know, keeping John Blanche as the illustrator throughout the four books. But, uh, you know, the, the kind of flying chaos birds and the kind of grim landscape, it really reminded me of the third book, The Seven Serpents. And they, they must have been really steeped in their Morcock. Mm. Because, you know, obviously Games Games Workshop went on to pretty much rip everything from everything he ever wrote, didn't they? Yeah, and th- there's a lot of stuff in here, isn't there, as well? Uh, oh, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we commented it in, in part one. Yeah. We commented on it in part one that there's lots and lots of stuff that makes it went things like the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay um, Europe setting. Yeah. And there's there's lots more stuff in here. But, I mean, even, you know, moving on to the next part, it's like this guy turns up, doesn't he, uh, who is Noreg Dan, the king without a country. And it, that's like, all right, uh, Magic Paul can play this week. Let's have uh, a new character. Oh, who's it going to be? It's Noreg Dan, the king without a country. This is the right way to introduce characters for me. I know in gaming, people write extensive backgrounds for characters and come up with really intricate things for me i want i'm jeff word i was the melon head of camden um let's adventure and then you know if uh, if i can't play for more than one session oh i'm dead or i'll just get sent off on a side quest and i'll just go and sit in the pub for two weeks if I, to see if i can play again that's good gaming for me yeah <laughs> that's how I, I want these things to work i like that he's called the king without a country because he just tells you everything you need to know but i didn't like that he announced himself as the king i am the yeah. king without a country it's like is that your brand like is that you've you been working on that have you been thinking that up you know if you'd said they call me the king without a country that that'd be fine yeah, but this is like it's like the GM said, All right, introduce yourself to the party. I am Noreg Dan, I am the king without a country, and the only thing he's not saying is I am a third level fighter yeah. thief or something. You know, they're just, just just leaving that bit out. But so we've got the king without a country, and as usual with these characters in Mokok, he does serve a couple of purposes. One is we've got a handy guide and a source of exposition. Second is We've got a tragic character that can demonstrate the impact of chaos on a yeah. civilised, lawful society. And usually this character will also be someone to die horribly in place of our heroes <laughs> to heighten the peril. In terms of Noreg Dan, we'll see. Because actually, he survives the book. Yeah. So he books that rule. But we will learn more about point two a little bit later on. And then we get another water-based, another weird water-based obstacle in the frothing White River. But it doesn't really come to much. At one point, I think Noreg Dan even comments that the water is really, really bad. Don't fall in. But Coram falls in and nothing really happens. So I'm sorry, but I no longer trust Noreg Dan <laughs> after that nonsensical advice. But we do get a bit of cosmology from Noreg Dan in Chapter 3, who explains this realm's ruler, Zionbarg, is second in power to the big cheese Mabalod, who is, of course, the King of Swords. And if they think this plane is a bummer, oh, just wait. Just wait till Mabalod. Well... We'll find out about that in the third book, won't we? Someone says, don't they, um, well, I hope we never have to go to Israel. It's like, well, there's one book left to go. (laughs) (laughs) I've got bad news for you. Yeah. And on on the edge of a yawning abyss, we get our next monster encounter, which 
gets us into our rhythm of Monster Encounter, Eye of Rill. Monster Encounter, Eye of Rill. And this is Vagan. And I'm just going to read a little bit about Vagan, because there's quite a funny bit of Jarry action here. And it says, uh, A reddish shadow moved in the yellow mist. Gradually, it began to emerge. Gradually, its shape was defined. It flew upon billowing crimson wings, and its grinning face was that of a shark. It looked like something which should have inhabited the sea rather than the air, and this was confirmed by the way in which it flew, with slow undulating wings as if through liquid. Row upon row of sharp fangs filled its red mouth, and its body was the size of a large bull, its wingspan nearly thirty feet. Out of the frightful pit it came, its jaws opening and closing as if it had already anticipated its feast. Its golden eyes burned with hunger and rage. It is the Garn, said Norek Dand hopelessly. The Garn which led the Chaos Pack upon my country. It is one of Queen Zionbag's favourite creations. It will take us before or ever our swords strike a single blow. So you call it a Garn on this plane, Jerry said with interest. I've seen it before, and uh, as I remember, I've seen it destroyed. How was it destroyed? Koram asked him as the Garn flew higher and closer. Mm, that part I forget. Classic Jerry. Jerry has read all the Moorcock books, but he hasn't like like really yeah. retained all the information. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, the gun, yeah, yeah. But I don't remember the chapter on yeah. how it was dispatched. Which yeah. again, he doesn't edit it, the podcasts and he doesn't listen back to them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems convenient as as well that he can tell you a bit about it, but not everything about it. But I guess. You know, if you want to kind of create a character who's sort of ageless and have lived lived all these different lives and stuff is absolutely consistent with that. Of course, he's not going to be able to remember everything. But it is it is quite humorous that, uh, mm. yeah, I can't really give you any useful information. Well, oh, yeah, I've been here before, but, you know, I'm not going to be any use. But pretty scary, right? If, or it would be if the characters displayed any tension, because why bother? Because Coram just uses the eye again. So the birds from earlier tackle the Garn, and they all tumble off into the abyss. Ah, but they do consider for a moment what happens if the birds don't kill the Garn? Does that mean the eye is useless? Well, good question. We'll find out shortly. Because the next encounter, Chaos Beast Men. So much RuneQuest struck WFRP source material yeah. in this book. Right down to the descriptions. Yeah, I, I read this part and I immediately pictured the Citadel miniatures like C-86, uh, Chaos Beastmen. It's, it's just exactly that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They're just taken straight from the page, aren't they? Now, quest question for you, as a D&D &D guy. Now, a lot of the framework of a wilderness D&D &D adventure is here, random encounters, you know, all this stuff. But did D&D &D ever do the Chaos Beastman thing, or was that very much RuneQuest WFRP? I, I don't think it did. It, it feels like it should have done, because in my, in my head it's sort of mixed up with fighting fantasy. And like reading White Dwarf and seeing RuneQuest stuff all the time. I never played RuneQuest, but you know, I'd just I'd just be sort of aware of a lot of this stuff. So look you know, thinking back and thinking of it as a as a whole, I'm completely familiar with it. But yeah, I don't think D D ever had the kind of twisted chaos mutant beast men characters. Mm. I mean I mean if they did it was in an edition mm. or a source book that I never saw. Yeah, I mean, they took all the alignment stuff and a lot of the trappings of the adventures, didn't they? But yeah, I, I don't recall anything like that in D&D. &D. I think in RuneQuest, now some RuneQuest fan out there who listens to this will probably tell me I am entirely wrong about this, but I think in RuneQuest, yeah. the brew 
were basically Chaos Beastmen, yeah. weren't they? But, you know, we've got our Chaos Beastmen, and I do like this bit, but, of course, we've got a problem here because he's run out of ammo for the eye. Going to do another bit of reading, this time from the fourth chapter. And it says, uh, what shall we do? Rulina whispered. What can we do against them? Coram said nothing. Carefully keeping his balance, he drew his sword, steadying himself with his six-fingered jeweled hand. While the Garn lived and fought the Blackbirds, there could be no help from the Netherworld. Do you hear that now? Jari said. That odd creaking? Coram nodded. With the creaking was a rumbling sound, and it was vaguely familiar. It mingled with the snorts and grunts and the bellows issuing from the yellow mist. There is naught for it, he said at length. We must go on and hope that we reach the floor of the abyss soon. At least there we shall be less exposed and able to stand and fight whatever is making that noise. They continued their cautious descent, eyes wary for the first sign of the beasts. Coram's foot had touched the floor of the abyss before he quite realised it. He had been climbing downwards for so long that he had become used to lying flat against the rock and feeling with his foot for each new step. Now there were no more steps and you could see the ground, uneven, covered in boulders, stretching away into the yellow mist, but he could see nothing that lived. The others joined him as he peered forward. The grunts and cackles continued, an appalling stink greeted their nostrils. But the source of the sounds of the stink was not yet visible. The creaking and the rumbling also continued. Coram saw them at last. By Elric's sword, Jerry groaned. Those are the chariots of chaos. I should have guessed. Monstrous lumbering chariots drawn by reptilian beasts were beginning to emerge from the mist. They were filled by a variety of creatures, some even mounted on others' backs. Each beast was a travesty of a human being. Each was clad in armour and bore a weapon of some kind. Here were pig-like, dog-like, cow-like, frog-like, horse-like things, some more deformed than others. Animals warped into parodies of humanity. Did chaos turn these beasts into what they are now? Coram gasped. Jerry said, You are mistaken, Coram. The king without a country spoke up. These beasts, he said, were once men. Many of them were my subjects who sided with chaos because they saw it was more powerful than law. And that transformation was their reward? Relina said in disgust. They are probably not aware of the transformation, Jerry told her quietly. They have degenerated too much. They retain little memory of their former existences. The black chariots creaked closer, bearing their grunting, shrieking, bellowing crews. There was nothing for it but to turn and run from the chariots, dashing over the uneven ground, swords in hand, coughing on the stink of the chaos pack and the clinging yellow mist. The chaos pack howled in delight and whipped up their reptilian beasts and the chariots began to move faster. The ghastly, deformed army was enjoying the hunt. Weakened by their earlier adventures and their lack of food or drink, the four companions could not run swiftly, and at last, behind a large boulder, they were forced to rest. The chariots rumbled on towards them, bringing the cacophony, the hellish, once-human things, the nauseating smells. Coram hoped that the chariots would pass them by, but the chaos pack could see more easily through the mist, and the first chariot turned towards them. Coram began to climb the boulder to get above the chariot. He struck out with his fist as a pig thing clambered after him. The fist sank into the creature's face and was held there, while the thing drew its own brass-studded club and raised its arm to finish Coram. Coram stabbed with his sword and the pig thing shuddered, fell back. Now the others were under attack. Relina defended herself with her own sword. They stood around the base of the boulder on the opposite side to Coram while he defended their rear. A dog thing leapt at him. It wore a helmet and a breastplate, but its muzzle was full of long teeth which snapped at his arm. He swung the sword and broke that muzzle in a single smashing blow. Hands, which had tended to claws and paws, grabbed at him, tore at his cloak his boots. Sword stabbed and clubs struck the stone at his feet as a whole mass of the creatures began to climb towards him. 
He stamped on fingers, hacked off limbs, drove his sword through mouths and eyes and hearts, and all the time was filled with a sickening panic which only made him fight harder. The babble of the Chaos Pack seemed to grow louder and louder in his ears. Their chariots kept appearing out of the mist until several hundred of the things surrounded the boulder. Then it came clear, to Coram, that the pack did not intend at this stage to kill them. If they had wished to do so, they could have slain him and his companions by now. Doubtless they planned to torture them in some way, or perhaps turn them into the same kind of creatures they had become. Coram remembered the Mabden tortures with horror, and he fought all the harder, hoping to drive some members of the Chaos Pack to kill him. But slowly, the fearsome tide rolled in until so many corpses pressed about the base of the boulder that Coram's three friends were unable to move their arms and were trapped. Only Coram fought on, hacking all who sought to take him, and then something clambered over the rocks behind him and seized his legs, dragging him down to where Relina, Jari, and the King Without a Country stood, disarmed and bound. Oh no, they've been captured. Because, of course, no eye of Rin. What a bummer. Now, we should point out that this exchange, which I love, is because of one of his superpowered magic items has been disabled. So we've got that new rule about the eye patch. But it also demonstrates that having these phenomenally powerful artifacts does stymie the narrative a little bit. And Mike has to come up with reasons for them not to work, just so the level of peril can be raised, and an oh no, we've been captured cliffhanger can occur. Can we forgive this? Well, I certainly did back in the day. I didn't I didn't question any of it. It was it was just there, so I accepted it. Yeah, looking at it now, I'm a little more critical. Um I, I mean I don't think we needed the birds. Yeah. Like the Garn is cool and the Beastmen are cool. You know, the yeah. birds are a little bit boring. Um, so we could have leapt straight to that. But you know, <laughs> he's he's um he's he's a pulp writer and he's come from writing for magazines yeah. and these short stories and working out these increments of how these stories progress and yeah, that's that was just your I guess your your first session of the campaign where you just fight fight some birds. You know, I mean maybe using the eye yeah. and the hand to defeat the birds was a little bit much and you know they could have just caught them normally and then use the eye and the hand on the garn i suppose but uh you know mm. I, I think if this were to be adapted I think as, you, you I, might cut out a few of these yeah i think as ever with murcock everything rattles by at such a pace i can forgive it because it never outstays its welcome mm. i think the eye thing is on the verge of outstaying its welcome because it's not the end of the eye business yeah, either. And this this cliffhanger is... I, I like this chapter a lot because I really like the exchanges between the horse guy yeah. as well in the Chaos Beastmen and the fact that um, the king without a country recognises him, tries to reason with him. Yeah, There's, there's some really quite tragic yeah. elements to the state that these men have found themselves in and this is the punishment that you get meted if you turn to Chaos. And this Polyb Bav has made this decision and he says, it cannot be revoked. Queen Zayambag promises us eternal life. But this is their eternal life, just to be howling creatures of madness that really don't know any joy or anything. They're just depraved creatures. And that's really quite sad. But anyway, we've got that cliffhanger. And it doesn't matter anyway, because Coram thinks, oh, I wonder if the Garn... Oh, the Garn must have been slain by now, because Horsehead Guy mentions the Garn and... Coram thinks, oh yeah, the Garn, I wonder if it's dead yet. And then the Hand of Quill kick, jumps into action, breaks his bonds, he lifts the eye patch, and well, bloody hell, the Garn comes out and kills all the Chaos Beastmen. And so Murkok contrives this situation where you can have this really effective 
situation of two or three pages of conversation with a victim of chaos, which is great. And it's like, right, done now. Move on. Let's get them all dead. Thanks to the Garn. And you do get this uh, really amusing part, which uh, I, I, I had to laugh at. Well, it's, uh, so the start fighting, the Garn is killing everybody. They think, right, I've got my sword, so let's scrap. It says, the Chaos Pack had seized Coram again, but now he was smiling as, with a tortured screech, the Garn's great body engulfed a nearby chariot, and its strange wings wrapped themselves around the whole thing and began to crush the occupants to death. So astonished were the Chaos Beasts holding Coram that he was able to tug himself free. They came after him, but he turned, and the hand of Quill smashed into the face of one, cracked another's collarbone. He raced for Polybav's chariot. The leader of the beasts had left his chariot and stood beside it, his huge horse's eyes fixed on what was happening to his companions. Before he had really noticed Coram, the prince in the scarlet robe had grabbed his sword from the pile on the floor of the chariot and aimed a blow at Polybav. The horse then jumped back, drawing his own sword, but his movements were dazed and clumsy. He parried, tried to stab, missed as Coram dodged aside and received the Vadag metal in his throat. Choking, he died. From time to time, I always get struck by how Mike effortlessly conjures truly cinematic action with so few words. And in that case, the punchline is three words. Choking, comma, he died. But that instantly, you can instantly visualise that and how horrible it is. Yeah. Choking and gurgling on his own blood. I absolutely love it. It's so simple, but so effective. And he was probably just tired at this point on night two of his speed-driven writing bender. So he just couldn't be asked <laughs> to write anything more. He was like, oh, he's dead now. You take this amazing horse-faced character and he's got a sort of very, like you say, a very sort of tragic story. It's like, he's there. He gives, you, he gives you all he's got to give and then he's just gone. We don't really need him anymore. We get rid of him. But when you, when you said there was an amusing yeah. part, what I was thinking was just prior to that, uh, when the Garn returns, um, we get, the Garn has come back, Polybarv shouted in triumph, oh, lovely Garn, thou hast returned to us, <laughs> which always amused me. <laughs> the, the lovely Garn. Oh, yeah. Poor Polybarv. It's, it's so sad. To conjure something so effective just because it's probably 2am <laughs> and, and you're running out of energy from your last baggie. You are, you are, you know, after that amount of time writing and taking speed or whatever, you are seeing horse-faced men and flying sharks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, are you, are you familiar with uh, the comic uh, character Warlock, uh, Marvel Comics, Adam Warlock? Only because of Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Right. Okay. I mean, this was sort of nineteen, like I think early seventies, uh, all by Jim Starlin. It's very psychedelic, and it seems very influenced by Morlock, Morcock. Um, the character himself is this golden, godlike character who's very humorless, um, but he's got this soul gem. I don't know if you can see that. He's got this black soul gem embedded into his uh, yep. forehead. And that's like, ah, and it, it, you know, obviously he sort of looks like Hawkmoon, and the Soul Gem has kind of a, a, a feel of Stormbringer because some, sometimes it does suck, you know, the life out of people. Uh, but one thing I remember from my uh, my childhood because Warlock was one of the comics that was printed as a backup story in the Star Wars Weekly by Marvel UK was where um, Warlock flies through space a lot. 
and as you can see, he is fly he's fighting a, a flying shark in space. And that's exactly what I pictured when uh, reading about the Garn. And I'm positive Jim Starlin was reading Moorcock because there's so there's so many little reference. I mean, some like completely unsubtle. Like I think he's completely based on Hawkmoon. He acts like Elric. He's a real edge lord. But yeah, the the Garn really brought it home to me how close uh, Warlock is. You know what? Moorcock just gets into everything, doesn't he? <laughs> he gets into absolutely everything. Yeah. And w one day I want to ask him. If at some point I want to ask him about his legendary three day writing benders and whether it's just in my head canon that he's speeding his tits off for three days, did I just did I just make that up in my head or did I read it? I, I'm, I'm going to ask him one day, I'm going to fucking ask him, yeah, if I ever get to talk just to him. email him, but anyway, what happens, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you have to go through Linda, so I'll email Linda and say, Linda, would you mind asking Mike for me? Was he speeding his tits off when he used to write books in three days? Yeah, we'll see. So what's next in our journey through this doomed realm? Well, it's chapter four, The Frozen Army. And once again, the start of this chapter made me laugh because the chapter's called The Frozen Army. And the first few sentences are, there were not stones, there were men. Each man a warrior, each warrior frozen like a statue with weapons in his hands. This, said Noreg Dan in quiet awe, is The Frozen Army. <laughs> Just in case the chapter title didn't give it away for us. And when I read it, I remembered Loz used to summarise, you know, going back a long time, Loz used to summarise an average Lovecraft story, like the thing on the doorstep. It was like, there was a thing on the doorstep. It was the thing on the doorstep. <laughs> that was like, in Loz's head, that's what all, all Lovecraft stories were. It always made me laugh, particularly when followed by something like, the thing is no longer on the doorstep. It's beyond it. In fact, it's in my study. Oh no, I cannot escape, dot, dot, dot. And that's how a short story would end as well, like a three-page <laughs> short story. Fucking brilliant. Which, of course, when you think about it, actually made it into Lord of the Rings, that concept, didn't it? Oh yeah, Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring. Balin's Journal is a Lovecraft story. <laughs> isn't it? Drums in the deep. Yeah, it's totally a Lovecraft story, which in the film, the film doubles down on that by having the last line on the book prop page sort of scrawling off and tailing downwards as though Balin is writing it right to the last moment when an orc clobbers him this. over the noggin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They are coming. They're straight out of Lovecraft, that. You know what? Good enough for Tolkien. Good enough for Lovecraft. That's what I reckon. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah, Frozen Army. <laughs> we, we, do, we do get some nice exposition here on the rules of the game, the rules of this whole law chaos stuff. Mm. There's some nice Jerry exposition here. Relina says, um, where is it? Uh, I heard that Queen Zayombag said that since they supported law so wholeheartedly, they should have a taste of what law aimed for. They should know the ultimate in tranquility. Oh, that's Norik Dan says that. Anyway, uh, Relina shivered. Is this really what law comes to? So chaos would have us believe, Jerry said. But it matters not, for the cosmic balance requires equilibrium, something of chaos, something of law, so that each stabilises the other. The difference is that law acknowledges the authority of the balance, while chaos would deny it. But chaos cannot deny that authority completely, for its adherents know that to disobey some things is to be destroyed. Thus, Queen Zayambag dare not enter the realm of another great old god, and, as is the case of your realm, must work through others. She, like the rest, must also watch her dealings with mortals, for they cannot be destroyed by her, willy-nilly. There are rules. Uh, and that's, that's a bit of foreshadowing, that of course, for the end of the book, isn't it? But I do like those little bits of cosmology. It continues. 
Corum remembered the towel where... Towel? Fuck off. Corum remembered the tower where he had found Ariok's heart. There too had been frozen men. Unless directly attacked, Jerry explained, Zayambag cannot kill mortals, but she can use those loyal to her to kill other mortals. She can suspend the lives of the warriors like these. So we are safe from Queen Zayambag, Corum said. If you choose to think so, Jerry smiled, you are by no means safe from her minions, and, as you have seen, she has many of those. Aye, said the king without a country feelingly. Aye. Many. Holding his reins in one hand, Jerry dusted at his clothes. They were tattered and bloodstained from various flesh wounds he had sustained in the battle with the Chaos Pack. I would give much for a new suit, he murmured. I'd make a bargain with Zion Bag herself. We mention that name too often, King Norig Dan said nervously as he clung to the side of the jolting chariot. We shall bring her down on us if we are not more discreet. Then the sky laughed. So Jerry accidentally summons Zion Bag by bemoaning the damage to his silk loon pants. That is just class. And accidentally summons Ion Bag, he does. But it's cool because they have an exchange, sort of like friendly old adversaries, <laughs> which is great. But not before the latest random encounter takes place. So this is random encounter four. Well, it's not entirely random, but this might be my favourite because we get the Carmanal of Zert. So, Simon, what do you make of the Carmanal of Zert? I've read this a few times and I still couldn't quite picture exactly what the Carmen Elizabeth are. And it made me think, I, I rushed back to my copy, my PDF copy, sadly, because I don't have the original book of Stormbringer and the Stormbringer Companion. Because I, don't, I, I think you've talked about this in the past. It's not like Tolkien where you've got these discrete races of creatures. You've just got these kind of random weird monsters all the time. And the, the uh, monsters in Stormbringer were I think they they ran out after one the Stormbringer Companion, um it had, so right at the beginning of uh, the the books of Corum you've got that wonderful passage where it goes and I'm turning to it now in those days there were oceans of light there were herds of crimson cattle that roared there were shrill viridian things that haunted black rivers and you've got the stats for the crimson cattle that roared and were taller than castles and you got the stats for the shrill viridian <laughs> things but and i thought oh they'll have, viridian the, things. they'll have the carmel of zert but i did not see the carmel of zert in there um so we don't know the stats either uh so i mean they just seem like more chaos things but even more chaotic like they're not they were never humans they were they just seem like the stuff of chaos maybe i absolutely love them i love them because there are weird, hopping, tentacle-headed oddities that do close harmony singing as they attack, which is just the greatest thing ever. It's such a short, simple description that it is almost impossible to envisage. But I was thinking there's, a, there's a, an illustration in Early Call of Cthulhu in the creatures section of one of the avatars of Nialathotep which is like got three sort of trunk-like legs and waving tentacles for a head. And I just think of a gang of them that are all singing close harmony, like a close harmony choir. Yeah. And I just love that image. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, sadly, we don't get a fight with them because Jari and Zayambag have their exchange, which is a, a bit of a pisser, really. But I really should have taken a moment to check out the, car, the Dark Side Corum supplement and see if there are stat blocks for the Carmenal Zert. So I've got to do that tonight now. 
I will include that in the in the outro of this podcast if they actually do exist in that source book. I hope they do. And if they do, I'll take a photograph and send you them. But uh, yeah, I love the Carmen Elevator, and it's a real shit. I am actually quite pleased that they don't attack because I would hate to think the Carmen Elevator ending up just as ammo for the Eye of Rin. That would be a fate that they don't deserve, in my opinion. I like that we get they have no souls, no true existence. Therefore, they should not be able to harm us. I agree that logically they should not be able to harm us, but I'm afraid that they can. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, logic schmogic. Yeah. This is quite an amusing chapter because Zambeg gets really, really shirty and tells Karam off before vanishing in a massive huff. She's like, oh no, the Carmen Alavzert, you're not going to fight them. Something much, much worse is going to happen now I realise that you killed my brother Ariok. So off she goes in a big huff. And then... And the chapter ends with mysterious arrival of an airship and me being happy because the Carmen Elevator is still out there hopping and singing. Oh. Now it turns out that when they were attacked by the Beastmen, Jerry sent Whiskers off to find help, and find help he did. And he returns with, to be fair, a pretty swish airship from the city of the Pyramid, which, it turns out, when he sees the Steersman, is a Vadag city, the last surviving Vadag city on this plane. And we'll find out a little bit later that actually they do technically come from from Karim's plane anyway. They escaped during the war with the Nadrag. And the, the we found out the proper title of the City of the Pyramid, which is Glas Kargris. Yeah. So doing my best possible, probably completely wrong Cornish pronunciation there. Well, I um I did actually listen to the audio drama version of The Queen of the Swords. Ah. Um and they pronounce it Gulaskorguris. Yeah. I don't know how close that is. And I'm not really sure whether there are like definitive pronunciations for Morcock stories. Yeah. I mean, I guess it all it will all go back to how he would pronounce it himself. But yeah. Gulaskorguris. Yeah. You know, I'll go with that. I, I don't think I'll try and say it too many more times during the course of this podcast anyway. <laughs> but I went on a, a Cornish pronunciation website and... Um, Guris or was was Gris Gris. I'm not even gonna fucking bother. I can't even pronounce English. I'm from all, so why would I even try and pronounce Cornish? Now you'd think Karen would be pretty chuffed, and he does get pretty high in the situation, but only after he mansplains mechanical flight to Relina for most of a page, while the fly of a weird chaos season dueled castles and stuff. And once again, there's lots of stuff in this that has made me laugh, but this one really made me laugh. Relina says. These people must have a powerful sorcery to make boats fly, Relina whispered to Coram. And Coram made no reply at first, for he was deep in thought, racking his memory. At last he spoke. This is not sorcery as such, he told her. It requires no spells and few incantations, but is instead mechanical in its nature. Certain forces are harnessed to give power to machines, some of them much more delicate than anything the Mabdon could imagine, which propel such vessels through the air and do many other things. Some of the machines could once sunder the fabric of the wall between the realms and pass easily from plane to plane. My ancestors are said to have created much such machines, but most chose not to use them, preparing a different logic to their living. I dimly remember a legend which says that one Sky City, that was the name they gave to their cities, left our realm altogether to explore the other worlds of the multiverse. Perhaps there was more than one such city, for I know that one did destroy itself when it went out of control during the Battle of Brogfuthus and crashed close to Castle Iron. As I told you, perhaps another city was called Glas Cogris, 
and is now known as the City in the Pyramid. Prince Coran was smiling joyfully and speaking excitedly, with his mortal hand depressed Relina's arm. Oh, Relina, can you understand what I feel at finding that some of my race still live, that Glandith did not destroy them all? She smiled back at him. I think so, Coram. So I can't quite decide whether he's chuffed because the Vatican's still alive or he's chuffed because he just got some mansplain engines to Relina. But, you know, either way, he's happy, so that's good. He is um, He is forgetting those people in the Burning Lands who are also his race that he kills. Perhaps it's best that he does. Yeah, what's a bit of genocide when you find out that actually they're not all dead, you know, and there's some left? Yeah, it's all right. So on, on arrival at the city, we meet Prince Yuret Hasdunuri, commander of Gulaz, Cog, I've forgotten already, and they all have dinner at a rather plush ruby table. Now, unfortunately, this beautiful city of gardens, restaurants, and, much to Jari's delight, tailors and haberdasheries, is close to falling, and their powers to defend against Zayambag's host are fading, and Coram's plan to take them back and help defend Bloom and Esh isn't really a goer, as they lack the precious materials on that plane to take the city back to that of Coram and Co. Now, was this always the plan? Was the plan always to go and get the city of the pyramid and bring it back? To help the defence of Leo Manesh? I can't really remember. Or is this just something just that's basically tucked up? Right, okay, that's fine. I sometimes find this period in Mocock like watching a Bond film. I've got no idea why Big Rog leaves Venice, for example, and goes to Brazil to ride a cable car. But he has he fights Jaws on top of it, so whatever. You know, and we're getting a little bit of that here. Anyway, Prince Uret says that they have enough kit to send just one ship through the wall between worlds. So they decide to hop it back to Lua Manesh to see if they can grab the necessaries to enable the whole city to make the trip if they survive the gathering attack from Zionbag and Co. We don't really find out what this material is. Normally, when you go into quest mode, you get some kind of MacGuffin. But all we know is it's some kind of materials. Um, but it's cool. You know, we know they've got a shopping list, and that's fine. It says uh, they slept, they ate, and their tattered, battered clothes were copied by the tailors and armsmiths of Gulas Kogurus, so that when they awoke, they found themselves with fresh raiment identical to that which they had worn upon starting out on their quest for the city. Jerry Akonel was particularly pleased by this example of the city's hospitality, and when, at last, they were invited to attend upon Prince Uret, he expressed that gratitude roundly. The skyship is ready, said Prince Uret gravely. You must go quickly now, for Queen Zionbarg, I learn, mounts a great attack upon us. Will you be able to withstand it with your power weakened? Jerry asked. I hope so. The king without a country stepped forward. Forgive me, Prince Uret, but I would stay here with you. If law is to battle chaos in my own realm, then I would battle with it. Uret inclined his head. It shall be as you wish. Now hurry, Prince Coram. The skyship awaits you on the roof. Stand on that mosaic circle there and you will be transported to the ship. Farewell. They stood within the mosaic circle on the prince's floor and, a heartbeat later, were once again upon the deck of the ornate, ornate flying craft. The steersman was the same who had first greeted them. I am Buidith Ahorn, he said. Please sit where you sat before and cling tightly to the rail. Look, Coran pointed beyond the green pyramid out across the black plain. The huge shape of Queen Zionbag could be seen again her face alive with fury, and beneath her there marched a vast army, a foul army of fiends. Then the skyship had entered the air and sailed through the dark green oval into a world which rang with the voices of the fiends. 
and over all these voices sounded the hideous, vengeful laughter of Queen's Iron Bag of Chaos. Before I merely toyed with them because I enjoyed the game, but now that they harbour the destroyer of my brother, they will perish in black agony. The air began to vibrate, a green globe of light now encircled the ship. The city in the pyramid, the army of hell, Queen's Iron Bag, all faded. The ship rocked crazily up and down. The moaning increased in pitch until it became a painful whine, and then they had left the realm of Queen's Iron Bag and came again to the realm of Arkin of Law. They sailed over the land of Leomanesh, and it was not very different from the world they had just left. Chaos, here too, was on the march. The end of book two! Will we find out what happens next? Yes, because we're going to do book three as well, because it's really short, so that's good. That's quite convenient, isn't it? Book three, in which Prince Coram and his companions wage war, win a victory, and wonder at the ways of law. Now, this is a good one. I think, chapter one of book three. It's good stuff. It gets your blood rushing. It's a real switch in tone. It's very grim. It's violent. It's apocalyptic. Flying over the countryside, they see slaughtered animals, families, rivers choked with the dead. And Coram does some proper hero stuff. Staring stuff from the Eternal Champion, risking it all to save a family and take out some frustration on sweaty, evil pony tribesmen. But I've got to say at this point, had we done this in two parts, or a part two and a part three, and come back to this, I would have missed just how massive a swing in turn you get from the psychedelic elements of book two and tentacled, hopping, close harmony singing, weird chaos monsters to dead families, rivers choked with dead people, references to the pony tribes engaging in murder and rapine. And it's it's a it's a really really wild swing, isn't it? Yeah, this is this is more your sort of traditional European fantasy land, grungy. It's a bit like that Warhammer, you know, old world. Um, the 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 previous book, it it's almost like the quintessential chaos landscape because you've got that sort of unchanging. I, I think that appears in a few other stories. I think there's an Elric short story where he goes to some sort of chaos land, and it's all like completely featureless and that sort of thing yeah like you say very psychedelic but yeah we're back in the we're back in the mud and the dirt and the filth now aren't we yeah and you get the same in the Hartman books don't you You get descriptions of pyramids of of naked dead men women and children you know just just a few pages apart from the throbbing bridge you know and it's it's uh i think sometimes i think it's one of the reasons probably why mocock was popular because you look you got that combination of stone and madness and really gritty, grim, um, hard-edged, high-stakes fantasy. Yeah. The the other good thing about this is we get to see Coram do real proper hero stuff because we're sailing over this land and he's seeing all this stuff and he's advised against it by the steersman, but he sees uh, a farmer with a rusty, battered sword about to defend himself from a load of pony tribesmen and, and try and defend his family who fled into the farmhouse. And Elric says, take us down, and he risks everything to save a family and take out some of his frustration on this sweaty gang of evil pony tribesmen. And you get some really good quality Mocock action with people being split from shoulder to breastbone and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. And they do successfully save this family. And El and we also found that nearly said Elric there, but Coram gets to show a different range of emotions in this chapter. He he displays outrage and anger 
over the course of this book, I think Koram actually shows more range emotionally than your average Eternal Champion character tends to do. And this is uh, a really fantastic passage where essentially Relina observes him almost losing his shit. And it says, um, Coram spat down on the hard, the stench of chaos now strong again in his nostrils. His mortal eye changed to burning black with an iris of flaming gold as his anger seized him, and he spat a second time on the flowing violence below. He made a noise in his throat and his hand went to the hilt of his sword as he remembered all his hatred of the Madden, who had slain his family and maimed him. He saw the banner of King Lear abroad, a crude, tattered thing bearing the sign of the dog and the sign of the bear. He sought to find his great enemy, El Glandith Cray, amongst the ranks. Relina called Coram, do not waste your strength now. Calm yourself and save your energy for the fight which must yet come. He sank upon the seat, his mortal eye slowly fading back to its original colour. He panted like one of the dogs that marched below and the jewels covering his faceted alien eye seemed to shift and glitter with a different rage from his own. Relina shivered when she saw him thus with hardly any trace of the mortal about him. He was like some possessed demigod of the darkest legends of a people, and her love of him turned to terror. A great little passage, that. I really love the idea of Coram just at the, at the railing at the side, just absolutely raging and spitting on the on the pony tribes and the balloon just out of, out of pure anger. Great stuff. So in chapter two, we find out that in the city, this city of terrified citizens and exhausted warriors, the meet with King Arnald, who reveal, reveals that Zionbag's herald is Prince Gain of the Damned. Now, we're finally... I think this is our 74th episode, and we'll finally meet Gain of the Damned for the first time. And he's probably the closest thing we have to an eternal antagonist for the eternal champion. And he'll return many, many times over the next 50 or so years after this book was written, because this was written in 71. In this and a variety of other guises, like Paul Minked, I think, is one of his later guises as well. And there's also a big presence in the comic adaptations because he's just such a cool-looking character that artists must really, really dig drawing. The Walt Simonson, Prince Gain of the Damned, is absolutely fantastic. So they love seeing him on the pitch. What do you make of Gain of the Damned as a villain? In the day, he was just another of these kind of terrifying chaos knights, like chaos warriors. Reading it this time, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, he, he doesn't feel coded, is it? But is he the eternal champion? Because is he Erikos? Because they talk about he's got this uh, tragic backstory, well, where he fell in love, and something went terribly wrong, and he just uh, wiped out his his people. And when uh, Coram defeats him, he's got this sequence where his face changes, and one of the Coram catches a glimpse of his own face in in the helmet, and it it doesn't seem uh, explicit here, but it. It, 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 there's got to be a link between him and Erikos, right? The, the, it's almost the same description. He's this kind of terrible, tormented, doomed creature that, you know, he's, he's got to eternally answer for his, you know, terrible, terrible crimes. But I, I never got that. Reading it back in the day, I just thought, oh, he's he's another he's another of these kind of chaos uh, lieutenants, you know. But he does seem so much more than that. And 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 I did, I I I just read the the Elric books, the Coran books, the Hawkman books, and like the two Erikos books that were out 
you know, in the late 80s. And I never I never returned. So my my knowledge of Gaynor is sort of limited to this book. And I think there's there's one of the Elric short stories. Maybe he appears. So I kind of I almost sort of forgotten about him. I'd, I'd not known how important he was in the sort of later multiverse stories. Yeah. So he, he, I think because you read these books in such a wild order when you're young, and they're all over the place. Mm. He's in because he's in he's in Revenge of the Rose in the eighties and um, the Elric novel. He's in the second Coram trilogy. He's um, part of the Army of the Cold Folk. And I've just found the bit actually in chapter three which I've missed. It says there was the Army of Chaos itself, misshapen warriors like those they had met earlier in the Yellow Abyss, led by a tall horseman in dazzling plate armor which clothed him from head to foot. Doubtless the messenger of Queen Zionbag, of whom they had heard. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. He is coded as like a failed version of the Eternal Champion. And the clue is there when, and I'll read that bit a little bit later, when Coram thinks for a split second he sees his own face when all these different faces are flashing by. It's like it's almost like he's undergoing a, a Time Lord regeneration or something after, after, after Coram defeats him before he vanishes and leaves behind an empty suit of armour. But I absolutely think Gaynor is such an interesting character because, and such a tragic character because he's a version of the Eternal Champion that basically failed and, was, and failed the balance and was doomed to serve Chaos um, pretty much for all eternity. And that's a really kind of terrible fate. Erikos thinks he's got a bad hand of cards, but actually you could, you could, you're absolutely right, you could even argue that the ultimate fate of Erikos, before you read Quest for Tanalon, which undoes this, you could argue that Erikos' ultimate destination is to become Gain of the Damned. Yeah. But then, of course, the Quest for Tanalon in the late 70s, Mocock attempts to tie everything up with a relatively neat bow, which kind of suggests that's probably not the case. But I, I prefer to think, I prefer to not, include quest for Tanalon, the very end in my head canon of the eternal champion i really like the idea that gain of the damned is this failed version of the eternal champion and Karam, without that knowledge of who he is is effectively fighting himself and seeing that flash of his own face under the helmet is a real shock but even then he doesn't quite get it i think it's i think it's terrific and um, gain has got good dialogue he doesn't talk like a villain. He talk, he's talks like a kind of defeated, broken character, like almost like he's not going to bother, but he still does because he's compelled to. He has to. But uh, yeah, I love yeah. some of his dialogue. He's gives you, I've got no honor. I've got maybe, maybe I've got yeah. fear, but that's all. Yeah, it's it's brilliant because you know, Karam throws down his. Well, I mean, of course, before we get to that, we have to think. Oh, Karam commits. He says, "Yes, I will take on." Gain of the Dam because the Meat Lord Arkin, they give Arkin the shopping list, and Arkin says, "Oh yeah, don't worry, I'll get this stuff." So this is why we don't have a MacGuffin because they're not even going to collect this this gear. Arkin just says, "Yeah, I'll go and get it. I'll go get the list of stuff needed to bring the city of the Pyramid back over to this plane." But Arkin tells Coram that Gainer is a tough nut to crack, effectively invulnerable, but he and only he can defeat him. So Coram commits to it, and at this point we think, "Right, okay, so." How on earth is this going to work? How is with two chapters left, effectively, or three chapters left? How is Karam going to fight his way through this chaos army to get to the game of the damned? Well, actually, it turns out to be really easy. They just sneak into the camp and walk right up to it. <laughs> it's it's really easy. Uh, it put me in mind of uh, a certain YouTube channel 
where he said, well, that's going to be hard, isn't it? Said, no, it's going to be super easy, barely an inconvenience. And that's exactly what happens. They just uh, they just basically sneak into the camp and, and walk straight up to him. I mean, we are 120 pages into a Mocock book after all, so we can't hang about. It is great, though, because Coram throws down his challenge and Gainer is wonderfully honest about how he has no interest in the rabble around him. He has no regard for chivalry, honour, or anything else other than carrying out Zionbag's wishes because he doesn't want the punishment he'll be in for if he fails. He's a truly, truly tragic character. It's fantastic. He does arouse the beast, the Chaos Beastmen to kill the intruders, but naturally, Coram, it's our final use of the eye. <laughs> and it's not. There's, even, there's still one to come. This is the, the penultimate use of the eye, which I think is now the fourth or fifth use of the eye of Rin. Yeah. Coram calls up his own beastmen thanks to the eye from the last battle, and a colossal melee ensues around them between Gainer's beastmen and Coram's dead beastmen. And in the middle of all this carnage, which again is super cinematic and a wonderful image, of all these beastmen dead and alive falling upon each other, and dead beastmen dragging their um, booty back into the Shadow Realm, screaming, whilst Coram and Gaina go at each other. And for a change, Mocock really takes his time over this fight. And it's wonderful. It's an exhausting combat over two or three pages that ends on a cliffhanger with Gaina after the upper hand, about to strike that killing blow on Coram. And it's fucking fantastic. Gain has only been around for one chapter and is already one of the best antagonists in all of Mocock, just based upon the explanation that Jari gives at the beginning of the chapter about who he is. Because Jari says, he too fought on the side of law, but then he fell in love with something. Perhaps it was a woman and became a renegade, thrown in his lot with chaos. He was punished. Punished, some say, by the power of the balance. Now he may never serve law or know the pleasure of law. Now he must serve chaos eternally, just as you eternally serve law. Eternally, Coram said, disturbed. I'll speak no more of that, Jerry said. <laughs> but you sometimes know peace. Prince Gainer only remembers peace and can never throughout all the ages expect to find it again. And that's a, that's a pretty tragic character. But does he slay Coram? Well, of course not, because there are far more Coram books. So we know that's not going to happen. There's one more in this trilogy, for heaven's sake. So let alone the second trilogy. So chapter four, well, the Hand of Quill comes back again. The Hand of Quill is having none of it. So it grabs Gainer's sword, bonks him over the head with its pommel, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny, and begins to tear open his visor, much to Gainer's desperate horror. And he pleads with Coram for mercy, but to absolutely no avail. Coram is having none of it, and Coram is pretty ruthless at this point, which, you know, is probably fair. But then we get that section which you mentioned, which I think is brilliant. It says, The hand of Quill wrenched for a third time at the visor and it came away. Coram stared at a youthful face which writhed as if composed of a million white worms. Dead red eyes peered from the face and all the horrors Coram had ever witnessed could not compare with the simple, tragic horror of that visage. He screamed and his scream blended with that of Prince Gain of the Damned as the flesh of the face began to putrefy and change into a scar of foul colours which gave off a more pungent stench than anything which had issued from the Chaos Pack itself. As Coram watched, the face changed its features. Sometimes it was the face of a middle-aged man, sometimes the face of a woman, sometimes that of a boy, and once, fleetingly, he recognised his own face. 
How many guises of Prince Gaynor known through all the eternity of his damnation? Coram saw a million years of despair recorded there, and still the face writhed, still the red eyes blazed in terror and agony, still the features changed and changed and changed and changed. More than a million years, aeons of misery, the price of Gaynor's nameless crime, his betrayal of his oath to law, a fate imposed upon him not by law but by the power of the balance. What crime could it have been if the neutral cosmic balance had been required to act? Some suggestion of it appeared and disappeared in the various features that flashed within the helm, and now Coram did not grip Nagaina's neck, but instead cradled the tormented head in his arms, and wept for the Prince of the Damned who had paid a price, was paying a price, which no being should ever have to pay. Here Coram felt as he wept was the ultimate injustice, or the ultimate in injustice. Both seemed at that moment to be the same. And now Prince Gaynor was not dying. He was merely undergoing a transition from one existence to another. Soon, in some other distant realm, far from the fifteen plains and the realms of the sword rulers, he would be doomed to continue, his servitude to chaos. At last the face disappeared and the flashing armour was empty. Prince Gaynor the Damned was gone. This is one of the best villain denouements in all of fantasy for me. I absolutely love it. Yeah, absolutely. It, this should be the end of the book. Yes. I was thinking exactly that, because the the rest of the close does get a little bit janky <laughs> for me, especially when the king without a kingdom turns up and gives him a ray gun, <laughs> which I thought was a bit, a bit out there. So you've got King Lyra and Broad. Well, before that happens, of course. And, and Gaynor will be back, of course, because he's too good a villain to waste. Coram and Jari hightail it back to the city in time for the big attack. And without Gaynor and the Chaos Beastmen, the fight is perhaps a bit more even, but it's still a grim experience, even with the arms of the dog and the bear held in reserve by King Lear of the Mabden. But Arkin comes back with a shopping, and Coram dispatches the Skyship back to Zayombarg's realm. And in the last chapter, everything rattles to a close with a combination of epic action, which is great, as Coram strides alone down an avenue towards the city gate as it falls in, smashed in by the yeah. army of the bear and the army of the dog, which is a brilliant image. Just him alone on this avenue, watching them all at the end of the avenue. And he uses the eye, for the last time this time, to summon up the last lot of dead chaos beastmen, those of Gainer, slain in his camp. And it's all on again. Great stuff. But not enough. But it's okay, because the skyship arrives, the king without a kingdom gives him a ray gun, he kills King Lear with it. So Lear Ambrode, this massively terrifying character that was built up in book one with whiskers watching from the rafters as he does horrific things to people, he just shoots him dead with a ray gun. <laughs> and, and then all, all his blokes as well, he just shoots them down. And then Zayombag arrives behind the city of the Pyramid in the sky and grows to massive size. And then Lord Arkin grows massive and fights Zayombag in the sky and defeats her because he baited her into his gaff where he's stronger and the day is one hooray. It's, it, yeah, apart from the bit on the avenue where he faces down the army of the dog and the army of the bear, those last three pages <laughs> are a bit wacky races for me. Yeah, I like, um, do like that the, the king has such a uh, ignominious death. He just basically points the thing at him. And there's not even a description of like, it's not a flame lance. It's just nothing happens, but he just dies. It's like he turns him inside out. And he just drops dead, and that's that's it. And you know he deserves it; it's fine. But uh, yeah, I think it would have been more effective just 
place in the episode with Gainer, like in this in this section right at the end. That's the that's the final villain. Because because Zeon Barg, she's his constant presence. We don't really get a lot of her, and we don't really get to know her. She's just sort of in the sky and angry. The, the best bit for Zeon Barg is just the exchange with Jerry, where she says, "I prefer you as a man," and he says, "Yeah, I prefer you as a woman." Yeah, and she also refers to yeah, um, Jerry as ma- yeah as Master Timoras. Yeah, and she she is she's flirting with him. She's saying, "Ah, oh, Master Timoras, I, I I prefer you as a man." Yeah, it's good stuff. All that. So yeah, I mean, the, we get this weird, convenient bit of Deus Ex Machina from Arkin. You know, okay, there's that bit where we we realize that she was so outraged that the city of the pyramid had escaped. She followed it through and broke her own cardinal law of traveling to the realm of another of the great old gods and trying to directly intervene rather than use her her powers. And that's how Arkin defeats her and basically takes the sword off her and banishes her. But yeah, the the whole. The whole ray gun bit. Yeah. I think at this point, three days of hardcore speed binge, <laughs> you know, and, and and expending all of his creative energy on that brilliant Gain of the Damned chapter. I think he's, mm. he's, he's, he's definitely exhausted himself by that point. But, but yeah, we do think, get a nice little epilogue. They've got flying ships, you know. They've got flying cities. Why, why not ray guns, I suppose? And it's, it's this sort of battle. A yet another sort of baffling thing that no one can understand, but yeah, to 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 us it just feels like yeah he's got a he's got a laser rifle. But but you're you're absolutely right. It's not even satisfying because he's given this thing which is like a, a lump with a spade like grip, and he's told spade yeah just point like it, grip. And, yeah just point just point it and and press that button, <laughs> and things in front of you will drop down dead. And he does that. And that's it. That is what happens. He points at him, and there's no description of impact. There's no description of what it actually does. It just says, oh, yeah, and King Lear just dropped down dead. And then his men were like, oh, and they're charged Coram. And he does the same to them, and they're dropped down dead. It's not very satisfying, is it? Yeah. Yeah. But we do get a nice little epilogue, because, of course, other than the scene in the temple, once again, probably one of my favourite chapters in this whole sequence, which is Whisker's Adventure, in um, Mabdenland. We've not really seen anything of Glanditha Cray, but we get this nice little epilogue where it says, Glanditha Cray was weary, as were his men. The charioteers were massed behind him. From the cover of the hill, he had witnessed the confrontation between Queen Zionbarg and Lord Arkin, and he had seen his folk destroyed by the Varag Shefenau in their sorcerous flying craft. For many months, he had sought Coram Hale and her sea, and that ghast of a renegade, the Margravine Relina. And at last, he had turned from his search to join the main army in its attack upon Halig van Naik, only to witness the sudden defeat of the Mabden Horde and its allies. Elglandeth glowered. It was he who was the outlaw now, he who must hide and scheme and no fear, for the Vadag had returned, and law ruled all. At last, as night fell, and the world was illuminated by the strange green glow from the monstrous sorcerous city, Glandith ordered his men to go back along the road they had travelled, back to the sea, into the dark forests of the northeast, and he vowed that he would yet find an ally strong enough to destroy Coram and all that Coram loved, and he believed he knew whom to summon. He believed he knew. This ends the second book of Coram. So that was it. We've done it. We've done Queen of the Swords, despite all challenges that have tried to get in our way. We have completed the Queen of the Swords. Thoughts? On Queen of the Swords. Yeah, not as good as Knight of the Swords. But yeah, I I um reading it again, you know, recently I I found a lot more to appreciate 
in it. I think at, at the time, I think when I first read it, and also I, I read them all again maybe 15 years ago, and I was I was a little bit disappointed by the second two books because I think that first book is so brilliant. It's so exciting and, and strange. And like I was saying, it's got that sort of Jack Vance quality to it. The, the, the second one is marking time a little bit. Zion Barg doesn't really doesn't really emerge as a as a character really. I mean, I, similar with Ariot, but with Ariot, you've got just such a kind of stupendous description of him in his hall with the kind of little little people crawling all over him. You don't quite get the same thing with the Zion Barg, and like you know, Zion Barg, we hardly knew you. She's she's there and then she's gone. Um. But uh, yeah, obviously, as you say, we get Gain of the Damned and we get the kind of chaos beast men and we get, you know, a lot of little sort of adventures. It's it, it it does feel like a series of little bits and some of the bits are better than others. And I think, you know, if you were adapting it, you would lose some of those bits and keep the best ones and maybe combine a few of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, even, even with, with her being sort of defeated at the end, that is sort of it's sort of suggested through the book. It's sort of when you get to that part, it makes perfect sense because they've, you know, they've they've laid laid it in in the in the dialogue that you know if if that were to happen, she'd be finished. Um, but yeah, it 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 does feel a little bit like a, a weak second chapter, kind of building up to the kind of big final chapter. Yeah, I do wonder. And this this is probably wrong, but I do wonder if you've got this super powerful female chaos god, and all she does is stand in the sky, like effectively at the top of the stairs, shouting downwards and getting really angry, apart from the, the moment where she flirts with Jerry. Is it because it's a female character that is struggling to write it? Because it can certainly write a, a gluttonous, corpulent villain, and that's what Ariok basically is in the first one, and he likes his gluttonous, corpulent villains. You know, we've got one in uh, Phoenix and Obsidian, which we're looking at at the moment. We had one in Forge of the Pearl. He likes all that stuff, but I think by his own admission, he struggled to write female characters at this point in his career, and he tried to redress that with the adventures of Catherine Cornelius and Una Person in, in the 20th century or whatever it was called. It was a long, unwieldy title. And I don't know, it's just it just feels like there was such a good opportunity there. Instead of having three chapters where it's use the eye, rinse, repeat, use the eye, rinse, repeat, actually have some interaction with Zionberg. Because when he when he writes dialogue with uh, Jari and the little bit of flirtation between Jari and Zionberg is amusing. I want more of that. You know, I want more of that and less random, you know, with the exception of the close harmony singing tentacle head beasts, they can stay. Yeah. The Garn can stay. The Chaos Beastmen can stay. Get rid of all the other extraneous bits. I, th I think it's one of the symptoms of these things being written in three days. And there being no yeah. real self-editing or, or rearrangement of things. But despite that, I think it's still a cracking read. When it's good, it's great. And the bits that aren't so great don't last long before you're back onto the great stuff again. Which is really 
yeah. how all yeah. this stuff worked at that time and, and what made them so easy to read. Because you knew that just around the corner, after uh, maybe a bum note, there's something great coming. Yeah. And it's just on, on this occasion, the really, really fantastic bit happens just before a slightly bum note, whereas, you know, that, that really should have been the climax, you know, which you mentioned already. Yeah. I mean, could, you know, could Zeon, Zeon Barg have been Gain of the Damned, or Gain of the Damned have been Zeon Barg? I mean, I get that what he's doing, he's make her as different from Ariok as possible, so rather than this kind of disgusting, corpulent, you know, gross thing, it's this very beautiful, uh, majestic creature, but you, know, you just don't don't get that much of her, and maybe you could have combined those two. But I, I, I do have to tell you a story which this book always makes me think of, and it's based on the end of this book. So I'm going to take you back to when I was doing my GCSE art, and uh, there were only there were only a handful of us doing uh, graphics. They called it graphics, but we really wanted to be book illustrators. We really wanted to do the books to the covers to Moorcock books. Me and my friend, we were both like, this was the prime time we were like absolutely entrenched in this stuff. And so we finally got a project where we were to do a, a book cover and a few interior illustrations. And I did the history of the room stuff. And my friend chose Queen of the Swords. And my my art teacher at the time she hated fantasy art, didn't she? So she was ang she was angry from the get go that we were doing these books. But this that was all we cared about. That's all we wanted to do. Um, and the other the thing she hated even more than fantasy art was what she called second hand reference. So she thought if you're going to paint something or draw something, you have to do it from it has to be in front of you. You can't use photographs. She she absolutely you know would fly off the handle if you'd drawn something from a photograph. And uh, my friend for his book cover, he, he did the, the face of uh, Zeonbarg in the sky with the, the, the green uh, uh, city, city in the pyramid flying in front of her. And she's there and she's got her kind of wild red hair and she's kind of glaring eyes. And my uh, the teacher looks at this picture and she goes, Who, who's this then? You didn't use a photograph, did you? And he goes, no, no, no. And he goes, who's it painting of then? And he goes, oh, uh, my mum. And I, I met his mum. He did not look like Zion <laughs> But what he basically done uh, is uh, Harold Decker from T'Pau. He, <laughs> he pocketed out, I think, even the cover of the T'Pau album that was out at the time. So, you know, Harold Decker's got amazing hair. Uh, yeah. But she, she was transformed into Zion So I do always kind of think of Zion as Harold Decker. As Harold Decker. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that... I was I was waiting to get get to the end of that book, and uh, I mean, obviously, this it's not my story. My friend should be telling this story, but he's not here, so I've I've yeah. uh, co-opted it. But uh, my my the, the thing it eternally stays in my memory for uh, Queen of the Swords. Well, I'm quite jealous in a way that you've got uh, like an, an idea in your head of what Zion Bag looks like because the character is in many ways so poorly drawn. I can't even really summon up an image in my mind. Of what this enormous god-like creature that basically only has two modes, anger or flirting, uh, yeah, it didn't really work for me. It didn't really work for me, and it's a shame that. There's a fantastic cover, you know, the the yeah. old door door ones where she's in the sky, 
you know, looking beautiful, looking like this sort of Indian goddess. Um, yeah, there's the, the Bob Herbfield uh, cover, isn't there? And yeah, there's also yeah. the, is it the, was it the Brothers? No, it wasn't the Brothers Hiddle Brown, was it? Um, there's one which is quite stylized, which looks like 60s pop art, where she's got the huge yeah. flowing red. Yeah. Sorry, not th- yeah. it's like a cross between like sort of 1930s art, um, like an absinthe adver- advert from a poster and pop art, yeah. where she's got the yeah. huge yeah. flowing red hair, which I think is a great cover as well. But, yeah. yeah, I'm blanking on the name of the artist, but I know the one you mean, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to go and have a look now. I've got it somewhere in a pile. Yeah. Hiding somewhere. But yeah. you know what? Yeah. Enjoyable enough and enough to keep me interested to see what Glanditha Cray can cook up for uh, for the King of Swords. Because one thing that I'm realising as I'm reading these is, I, I thought I might have said this when we talked about Night of the Swords, but... I always thought I'd read these more recently than a lot of the other Mocock we've covered and I've reread. But it's very much the second Coram trilogy that I've reread more than once since the 80s. And that was always the trilogy that I always thought was the better one. But on rereading them about seven or eight years ago, I'm not entirely sure I feel that way anymore. There are great things in the second trilogy, like the Cold Folk, the Foy Mayor and all that stuff. The setting's brilliant. A lot of the antagonists are really interesting. But the whole quest mode angle gets really, really tiresome in those books. In the setup, quest in the middle, resolve things at the end, becomes really super formulaic. And whilst we are bemoaning the fact that we don't get more time with Zeombag, I am glad that it didn't just mirror the first book in the you know, first part in Luanesh, second part psychological road trip, third part find our way to Zionberg's castle and defeat her. So I appreciate that there's something different going on. I appreciate that although the structure's broadly the same, the actual climax is handled differently and we get all of that quite grim, gritty war um, scenario. Um, I think that works really well. I love the fact that Coram gets to display some real heroism in serving normal people, which we didn't really get in the first one because he's just angry at men all the time. So he's showing some growth. He's actually on an arc, his relationship with Relina. Even though Relina's in this entire book, what does she do other than get mansplained engines by Coram? She doesn't get a whole lot to do other than just be there and stroke his head when he's upset. Yeah, it's, it, it, it does show a little bit of development. So I'm really looking forward to doing the third one. I think it'll be good. So it takes an upward swing. I think there's there's better stuff in the third one. The the second trilogy, I've got barely any memory of. I I read them back in the eighties, not read them since. And apart from the very beginning of it, where he goes into sort of Celtic land, can't really. So um, yeah, I I will have to reread those as well, you know. But uh, yeah, this this trilogy is. Um, I think it's my favourite Morcock sequence. Um, as you know, as much as I love all the Hawkman books and the the Elric books that were out at the time, it, it does feel like you know it is it is one story, you know, as as episodic and bitty as it can sometimes be. Yeah, so far for me, it is more consistently strong than the Hawkman books. Certainly, the Hawkman books have got great things in them. I think it's hard to compare them with the Elric stories because they're all over the place in terms yeah. of when they were written. 
and how the narrative works and how the writing style changes. So I would never try and compare anything with the Elric sequence just because it's so all over the place. Not just in terms of, I'm not going to say in terms of quality because I like it all to one degree or another, but in terms of consistency. So yeah, I think as a trilogy, this is a, this is so far for me, and I'm hoping it continues with Night of the Swords, a really, really strong trilogy. And certainly as strong as anything he wrote in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, thank you for braving the absolute shit show, not only of scheduling, but of technology that we've had this evening. Because, you know, we'll go into detail, but just for, for listeners' sake, what a fucking ball ache the technology has been this evening. But thanks for playing out. All right. Well, I will look forward to doing King of the Swords. Hopefully we can get that one sorted without as many delays and uh yeah um you know what it. it can't it, it can't get any harder or worse than this one was so <laughs> i think we can i think i think we've turned a corner <laughs> we've turned a corner and i'm probably saying that because i'm two pints of daffy's gin and tonic down so i'm just naturally feeling optimistic all right dude thanks again and uh catch you next time all right take care Massive thanks to Simon for sticking with me through not only scheduling issues, but also a boatload of IT problems when we finally did get down to recording. Check out Canapod with Madness. It's hosted on Podbean, but it's available on all the usual podcatchers. Following our discussion, I did check the Dark Side Quorum RPG supplement, and, sadly, it does not contain any stats or images regarding the Carmenel of Zert. I also hopped onto interwebs, and, whilst I didn't find a satisfactory visualisation of our harmonising chaos friends, I did find a song called Carmen Loves Earth on Bandcamp by a band called Blaze Atoms. A powerful name. The track appears to have been a demo and doesn't have lyrics, although you can read them on their Bandcamp page. I'll pop a link to the page in the show notes, and I'm going to play this show out with The Carmen Loves Earth by Blaze Atom. Finally, thanks as always to our patrons for keeping this show on the road. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix. And to our Chaos Engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Bill O'Cat, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Malpertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Ofer Ziv, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, and, of course, Simon Perrins, and, all new to the Donplass, Andrew Spong. Andrew sent me a visual guide to why he'd taken an interest in Breakfast in the Ruins, and suffice to say, it involved a complete set of Millennium hardcovers, a bolt thrower t-shirt, and a frankly magnificent fridge of beer. Thanks, Andrew. And, of course, thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Eliel Westenra, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, and Toby White, and finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Tone Malazzo, Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Glenn Sawyer, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Marius Latowskis, Maldred Lobato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, 
the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but of course, never least, Robert McMillan. Right enough from me. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio is live on Radio Garden or via the web player at breakfastintheruinsradio.blogspot.com. We have our Patreon page too. There are a few extra odds and sets on there. But for now, take care. Stay safe. And we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.